Uh, notice that song. What great singing. Uh, Brother Cornet, thank you so much for making those books. Notice that song, 46. I've never seen someone uh, sing propitiation. That, that's in there. The third verse, they, they, they put actual word in there, not a metaphor. Uh, this song, His Robes for Mine, is written by a man who's still living. He's pastoring in the state of Ohio in the U.S., and it's a wonderful song, and it's full of justification, uh, many glorious truths about the cross, but I want to encourage you to read and sing carefully when you, when you sing at church. We attempt to pull the best songs from all the churches, all the time periods throughout church history. We're not interested in invention. We are interested in faithfulness and uh, real love. And I think this song moves, uh, moves us in that direction. So thank you, Cornet, for making the songs, and Amy for playing, and all of you for learning that new one today, His Robes for Mine. John chapter 17. Open your Bibles to John 17. Let's read this morning verses 7 and 8. John 17, verses 7 and 8. Does anyone need a Bible as we begin? John 17, verse 7 and 8. Now they have known all things. Whatever you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you gave to me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that you did send me. The text this morning begins with the little word, now. We have already seen now in verse 5. Look, look in your Bible there. Do you see verse 5, now? What time are we referring to? Back in verse 1, the great hour. Do you see that? Now in verse 5 and now in verse 7 is referring to the great hour that has arrived. When Jesus says, the hour is come. This greatest of all hours has arrived. 4,000 years of history was building to this point, And for the last 2,000 years, we've been looking back to that point so that all of history could be seen as a mountain. Adam and Eve began climbing. Abraham kept climbing. David kept climbing. Jeremiah kept climbing when he prophesied of the new covenant that would come. Zechariah was still climbing when he prophesied that they would one day look on the one that they had pierced. But when this hour came, we're at the top of the mountain. For 2,000 years, everyone who has believed in the Bible alone, <clears throat> Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and to God alone be glory, all Men and women who have had that commitment and that love, they have been now looking back up the mountain at that one hour. The hour has arrived. It is the great time, the time of the cross. And how will the Son be glorified? That's our question. How is it that Jesus Christ will be glorified on the cross? That's what we're going to see today. We want to understand, okay, now that the time has come, 
How will Christ be glorified? Look in your Bibles at verse 7. It says, now they have known. Oh, the disciples know. They now know that everything that God gave to Jesus came from God. They know the source of these things. They learned it by three years of walking with him. They had learned this because they had been taught from God himself. But I want to ask you this question. How did they learn it? In verse 7, it says, now they have known. Do we all see that in verse 7? When the great hour, the hour of all history, it's now reached its pinnacle. Now these disciples know. How did they know? Or in other words, they have become the first Christians. Jeremiah and Isaiah were not Christians. We now have the first Christians. These are the ones who have known God's Messiah. Isaiah didn't know God's Messiah. He looked into the shadows. David was prophesying, but he did not know exactly what he was, who he was prophesying about. In Psalm 2, when he said, the Lord has said to my Lord. In Psalm 110, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David didn't know what he was prophesying about. He didn't know in Psalm 2 what he was prophesying about when he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. David didn't know. David was not a Christian. He was a believer. But now, these ones have known. So if these ones have known, how did they come to the point where they knew? How did they get what Isaiah didn't have? How did they get what Zechariah didn't have? That's the question. That's going to be answered today in this sermon. Because somehow these people became convinced, even though they had never gone to school, they did not have certificates, they didn't do any special training. In fact, Peter and James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew, these disciples had not even been to church yet because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. So let me ask you, how did these ones learn? It says in verse 7, Now, these ones have known that everything you gave me came from you. How did they learn? The answer to that question is found in verse 8. Tell me, what's the first word in verse 8? It's the same in every translation. What's the first word? Everyone say the first word of verse 8 together. Ready? For. For. Or you could say because. Now these ones have known for, and then verse 8 is going to give the reason that they knew. Now, I want to ask you this question. At the peak of all history, when the son is speaking to the father and he never wastes any words and he announces, oh God, these disciples now have learned something that no one else knew. They have learned that all things that came from you have been given to me because such and such has happened. This morning, I would like to explain to you the tool used by Jesus Christ. 
That's the title of the sermon. The tool Christ uses. And the same tool that Jesus used to make the disciples become educated can be used by you today. The same tool that produced the first Christians can make you a Christian. The same tool that is to be found that Isaiah wanted, that the angels wish they could understand, that tool can be used by you to make you a Christian and to make you a church member and to bring you all the blessings that have come to those early disciples. What is that tool? Well, look in verse 8. Let's see it. For because I have given to them. I did something. And then secondly, look in verse 8. They have received. They have done something. Do you all see the word they in verse 8? They did something and I did something. How many things do they do in verse 8? No, no, look, look, look carefully at verse 8. How many things did they do in verse 8? Number one, they first of all receive. Secondly, what's the second thing that they do in verse 8? It'll either say no or understand, depending on your translation. They, un- they received something and they knew something or they understood it. What's the third thing they do? It's the same word in every translation. You can just say it without any fear. What's the third thing that these people did in verse 8? Okay, so in verse number eight, Jesus does a thing and these people do a thing. So the first point of the sermon is, what did Jesus do? The second point of the sermon is, what did the people do? And the third point of the sermon will remain a mystery until I get to it. Let's see it now. What did Jesus do, first of all? Jesus faithfully gave them the words. Do you see that in verse 8? He says in verse 8, I have given to them the words which you gave me. First of all, notice this. Jesus passively received words from who? From God. The Father gave Jesus words, and then when he received them, he gave them on. Jesus did not invent. Brothers and sisters, we need to get this settled right now. The tool that is used to produce a Christian is not invention. We do not need inventors to become Christians. We need faithful miners. A miner goes down into the ground and brings out gold that was already there. Did the miner produce the gold? No. Did the miner invent the gold? Did the miner get an idea and say, hey, what would happen if I mixed the sand and I mixed the oil and I mixed some rock and I put it under pressure? I wonder if there is a way that I could bring out gold. He doesn't do that. He digs down, he pulls out, he brings it to the top and he says, everyone look at this metal that I've found. That's what the Lord Jesus does from the Father. Friends, if you would be helped with the tool that the disciples had, you do not need inventors. You do not need to find a church with a clever pastor 
who can always find funny things to say or new things to excite you. In America, there was a group that met on the first day of the week who called themselves Christians. And the pastor would constantly look, the man who called himself a pastor, would constantly look for new ways to excite the people. So one time in the place that he called a church, he got a motorcycle and had a stage put up in front and a motorcycle drive in during the event that he called a sermon and it would jump over the pastor while he was standing doing what he called a sermon and doing what he called preaching. And the motorcycle would jump over him. Why? Why do you think he paid so much money to have the motorcycle jump over him? He wanted to excite the people. Question, if you got a man together to give a speech, and while he's giving the speech, motorcycles were jumping over his head, do you think people would like to see that? I know they would because thousands and thousands of people met in that building that they called a church and watched on the first day of the week as that man gave a speech while the motorcycles were jumping over him. Another man who calls himself a pastor at a place called a church promised that if they got enough people in the place they called a church, he would get in a bathtub in front of the people with a boa constrictor snake. And then they took a video of it and put it on YouTube. Question, if a man got in a bathtub with a boa constrictor snake, do you think people would come to watch it? That's not what Jesus does. Those people meet on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. They meet in what they call a board room. You know who meets in boardrooms, right? Big business executives who are trying to decide how can Coca-Cola get more money away from Refresh. That's what happens in board meetings. And that's the name of the, of the room that many times these people who call themselves pastors meet in. They'll say, let's go to the boardroom on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday from 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock. And let's have our meeting to determine what can we do this coming Lord's Day to attract people to come and watch us. And that's only the beginning. You can find many more of these things at the, the Museum of Idolatry. There's a website called the Museum of Idolatry, and it just lists these one after another. I think it's called museumofidolatry.com. It's amazing. The man just makes list after list. And there's always new examples because there are always inventors looking for your money. Because of that, they have inventors who do these things, but they're not doing what Jesus did. Right? What does Jesus do in verse 8? I gave them words that you gave to me. Did Jesus invent special shows? No. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says... Then Jesus, one of his disciples that came to him, he sat down and taught them. That's not exciting. That's basically a talk from a wise man. He received words from the Father, he delivered out those words. He was not interested in making a show. Brothers and sisters, if you would become Christians, 
You don't need invention. You need someone to faithfully give you what God already gave. Christ passively received from the Father. But notice in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, it says, In the last days, they will heap up to themselves teachers because of their itching ears. The people in the church of the last days have these tingling ears. They always want their ears to be tickled. They always want to hear something exciting or see something exciting. They're always eager to find some new show. In the days of Charles Spurgeon in London, they were called sermon tasters. They love to have some new excitement. And today, because of technology, they'll put on red and green and blue flashing lights. They'll even have smoke machines. Do you know that? Some buildings called churches with some men called pastors will get machines that produce smoke. Does Jesus say, I gave them your words while a smoke machine was going? What could a smoke machine possibly have to do with producing a new heart? has nothing to do with it. So notice this. Jesus does not use new tricks. He's passive in receiving. Preaching is passive in the sense of creating the message. The message that I'm delivering to you today is the message of a miner. I went down in the earth, I brought back the gold, and I'm here to show you the gold that's been down there for a long time. And if you want to be a Christian, you need to find a church that brings out gold. You don't need to find a church that's always bringing up new gadgets, new inventions. Number two, notice this. It not only says... The Father gave me the words. It said, I gave them the words. Jesus Christ faithfully delivered exactly those words and no other words. Do you follow that? Jesus faithfully delivered those words and no other words. This is a linguistic task. It means we must take words very seriously. If you want to be a preacher, you've got to learn how to read. And when I say how to read, I mean you know what, need to know what a subject is and a verb. You need to know how words work. You need to understand how words work. You need to study Greek and study Hebrew. And if you say, wow, that's too hard then realize this, it's a hard job to be a preacher because you're going to have to work with words. It's a linguistic task. Some today emphasize meaning over words as if the words did not matter. They'll say this, what matters the most is that we have the meaning of the words. We don't really need the exact words. Have any of you do you have right now, or have you ever seen one of these Bibles? The message. Good news. Living translation. New living translation. 
Have any of you ever seen Bibles called those? The Message, Good News, Living Translation, New Living Translation. Have you ever seen those or had those? Put your hand up. A few. Okay. Those Bibles are Bibles that were written with the author saying, I'm not going to give the reader every word. I'm going to look at the words and I'm going to put the meaning of the words and let the people read my understanding of the meaning. What is the danger in that? Well, every time that you take a step away from the words, you might lose something that God wrote and put in those words. We need the meaning, but it is, it is a difficult task to get the meaning. The safest Bible translation is the Bible translation that is word for word. And then you have to do the hard work of discovering what? The meaning. The meaning. And that is why, one of the many reasons why you come to church on Sunday and Sunday night. Because the pastor is supposed to be a man who understands how words work. And the pastor works all week so that he can take words and bring out the meaning to, to you. And you're going to try as well. You're going to read at home. But sometimes you're going to say, I don't understand the meaning Oh, when you come to church, you have other Christians. When you come to church, you have a pastor. Hopefully, if you have a good pastor, he'll give you books of other godly men who will explain it. And when you sing the songs, even those songs will help explain the meanings of the words. Like the word propitiation. It's in your Bible. But when you sing that song, song number 46, His Robes for Mine, you're going to understand what propitiation is. It's right there in the song. So our Lord Jesus gives the exact words. Friends, it is dangerous to separate the meaning from the words. Because when we separate the meaning from the words, we are not bound and protected by the words. On January 22nd, 1973... Something happened in America. Does anyone know what happened 1973, January 22nd? Does anyone know? Do you know? On that day, 22 January 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States voted seven votes against two votes. To say that the Constitution of the United States allowed women to murder their babies. As long as the babies were not over 10 months old. As long as the babies were less than 9 months old, possibly 10 depending on birth, you can murder the baby. How did the Supreme Court come to that conclusion in the most powerful nation in the history of the world, and the nation that has been more influenced by Christianity than any nation in the world. Here's how it happened. In the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America, 
The Constitution gives the right for citizens of America to be free. Does that that make sense? So they say in the 14th Amendment that citizens have the right not to be bothered in these ways. Watch what happened. The words of the Constitution, citizens have the right not to be bothered by the government. Here's what the the Supreme Court did. They said, those are the words of the Constitution, but what is the meaning of the words? And so the meaning of the words, they said, I think the meaning of the words is that we should all have privacy. Now, the word privacy is not in the 14th Amendment. Do you follow me? The 14th Amendment has words, and the the, the judges looked and said, I think the meaning of those words is the meaning of of the word privacy. Okay? Is the word privacy in the amendment? No. So already they've stepped away from the words of the amendment, and they've made a new word, privacy. Then they took another step, and they said, the word privacy means that women can do what they want without the government knowing. So then they took another step. Then they said, if the woman can do what she wants without the government knowing, then they take another step. Then that means that the government cannot punish the woman for doing what she wants because that is privacy and because privacy comes from these other words in the 14th Amendment. Do you see what they did? They just allowed the murder of millions upon millions of little babies because they separated what? Word and meaning. By separating word from meaning by three steps. They went from the words, what was the first step? Privacy. Then from privacy, they said, do what you want without the government. Then from that, they said, kill your baby. They took three steps away from the words. Brothers and sisters, that will happen to you in a place called a church and you will be lost for all eternity with your children if you do not tie yourself to what? The words. Jesus said, I gave them the words that you gave me. I passed on the words. He doesn't say, You gave me words, and I thought about them, and I looked at what their meaning might be, and I decided I'll leave the Father's words, and I'll invent my own meaning, and then I'll give a second thing to the people. He gave the words. Friends, today, we separate the words from the meaning in many ways. Let me give you six examples very quickly. Some men separate the words from the meaning, and they teach that... Number one, hell will not last forever. There are men who call themselves Christians and say, oh, hell doesn't go on forever. How did they get there? They separated the words of Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11 from the meaning of Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11 and many other verses. Some men teach that good people in other religions will go to heaven. How can they possibly get that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Oh, they separate those words from the meaning. And they say, 
Uh, even if you believe in Allah, or even if you believe in a Hindu god like Krishna, or even if you believe in African traditional religion, really you're believing in Jesus. You have the same meaning, you just don't know the right words. They'll say that. They'll separate the words and the meaning. Even C.S. Lewis did this. Even though he writes in the book, The Abolition of Man, he writes, in the book, The Abolition of Man, he writes what I'm preaching right now. And then he contradicts himself in the Chronicles of Narnia in the last book in that series when he separates the words from the meaning and puts a man in heaven who did not worship Jesus. Third example. Some good men teach this and some bad men. When they separate words from meaning, they teach that we should speak unintelligible sounds when the church gathers together. They teach that when we gather together, it's a good thing if we say, They'll say that that's a good thing and that that honors God. How do they get there? There's only one way they can get there. What do they do? They separate the words from the meaning. Another example. They'll teach that men choose God before God chooses them. Even though John 15 verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We love him because he first loved us. Even though it's very clear in the Bible, they'll teach. Men chose God before God chose men. They'll teach that baptism washes away sin. They'll teach that women may be pastors and preachers and leaders and many other things. How do they get to this point? They separate the word from what? The meaning. Jesus did not do that. He gave out very clearly the words that the Father give, gave him. When did Christ do this? In the Sermon on the Mount that we just read two months ago, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew chapter 10, in Matthew 23, when he rebukes the Pharisees. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. In the Upper Room Discourse that we're studying right now in John 13 to 17. Jesus actually did this here on earth. And Jesus' most common name was, or title, was teacher. The most common name that men used of Jesus was a teacher. And the Gospels constantly describe him as a man who went around teaching. What did he teach? The very words that the Father gave him. So let me now give you what can a preacher do in order to preach like Jesus. What can a preacher do so that he'll preach like Jesus? And then I'm going to give you what can you do so that you can listen like the disciples. Five things very quickly. Number one, a preacher can study carefully so that the meaning of his message is the same as the words of the Bible. He can give those words without fear, even if they are unpopular or even hated. Number three, he can cut from his sermon anything that is not from those words. Number four, he can apologize for any times in the past when he has said something that was not the same as those words, or any time that he has contradicted those words, or any time he inserted his own words, or any time he neglected to say one of those words. Number five, what can a pastor do? He can tie his people to their Bibles. So that they will love the words more than his own personality. Brothers and sisters, my job 
One of my many jobs is to teach the Bible to you so that you love the Bible more than you love me. If you have more allegiance to the man than the Bible, the pastor has done a bad job. Yesterday, I was so encouraged. I was with Cornet, and as we were talking, they asked a question, and Cornet answered it to one of the people we were doing Bible studies with. And he said to them, you need to love and read the Bible more than you listen to your pastor. And he even pointed at me and said, his words are only the words of a man. I need to love the words of the Bible. And I was sitting right beside him, and I was so angry that he wouldn't respect me. No, I wasn't angry at all. I was filled with happiness. This man gets it. The words that come from a man are only that man's. We need the words that come from who? God. And you found a false pastor when he tries to pull you to himself more than to the Bible. What can the hearers do? Five things. You're listening. You're not the pastor. Maybe someday God will call you to be a pastor. But right now, what can you do? You're a listener. Hearers can prepare to hear the words so that they will be fresh, awake, and interested. They can bring pens. They can buy their own Bible. They can take notes. They can perhaps get a nap so that they are not sleepy. They can go to bed early Saturday night so that they will be able to listen carefully. Number two, they can expect the teaching to be the largest part of public worship. If you want to be a hearer like these disciples, then expect preaching to take the most time. Number three, they can listen with interested faces and looks. You give a lot back to the pastor, and the pastor, if he's a good preacher, makes judgments about how to teach based on your faces and bodies. Your bodies and your faces say a lot. Ask yourself, what is your body saying to me right now? What are your eyebrows saying? What shoulders? What about the way you hold your Bible? What about the head that is cocked back and the mouth wide open? That does not tell me that you're hungry as a little bird ready for the food. What does your body and face and mouth and eyes show? You can communicate that to the pastor. Number four, you can invite others to hear the truth. Number five, here's very important. Some of you come and listen to teaching and you've heard the Bible for many years. And you say to yourself, it's hard to go to church because when I go to church, usually the pastor is preaching things that I already know. Oh, so you know those things? What can you do? Number five, if you come to church, you can look for new applications to your situation and new revelations of some beauty of Christ rather than assuming that you know everything from the passage. You will commonly find that the Holy Spirit will speak to you and reveal something to you maybe that the pastor only mentions in passing or maybe something that the pastor doesn't mention but is there in the Bible or maybe something that the pastor mentions in a cold and dull way but suddenly the Holy Spirit brings it with life and power and health to your soul. The first activity is what? Christ gives out the word. What is the second activity? Look down in verse 8. Tell me, what's the second activity? It's these, it's these people... And they're doing something. 
They receive. They know. They believe. Three actions. They're receivers. They're understanders. Or in the ESV, it says they came to know the truth. How many of you have the ESV? Hands up if you have the ESV. Okay. They came to know the truth. They believed. For time, let me just move on quickly here. What does this mean about Christ's teaching? It means this. Christ taught in an understandable way. The sport of baseball, called the American pastime, is a sport with a small, hard ball. And a pitcher will wind up and throw that ball as fast as he can, and a catcher will catch it. Now, in between the pitcher and the catcher is a man trying to swing a small bat and knock that hard ball more than 100 meters. So, if you're with a six-year-old who's trying to learn to play baseball, should you take that hard ball and throw it as fast as you can? What do you think that six-year-old who's standing there holding the bat, when he swings the bat, do you think he'll be able to swing and hit that ball if you throw it so fast? No. When you're playing with a five-year-old or a six-year-old, you might toss the ball very lightly, underhand. You might send the ball very slowly so that the little boy who's standing there can respond and swing the bat. What would you call a dad who has a boy who's six years old and the six-year-old stands there holding the bat and the dad says... Here you go. Here's how you play baseball. And he winds up and he throws that ball at 120 kilometers an hour. And the six-year-old can't even move the bat by the time the ball has come by. Would you call that a good dad? Of course not. You want the father to act in such a way that the son can somehow be involved. Jesus does that. Jesus does that right here. Let me show you what I mean. He could have spoken in ways that the people could not understand. But instead he spoke in ways that they could receive, understand, and believe. For time, let me give you seven ways that a preacher can do that. And then five ways that you as a hearer can receive the catch. here's, Here's Seth preaching, and there you are listening. It's like I'm throwing the baseball, and you've got to catch it. But if you're not used to catching the ball, you might drop it. How can you catch it? I'm going to give you five ways after I give seven ways. Very quickly, what can the preacher do? A preacher can speak in short sentences. He can use illustrations, examples. He can ask questions, number three. He can anticipate their objections. He'll say things like, Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably going to say, the preacher can say while he's teaching. All four of those are found very commonly in the sermons of Jesus in Matthew that we've been reading in January, February, and March. We've been reading these sermons. 
Jesus does that. Notice when you're reading this month, notice how many times Jesus uses short sentences. Notice how many times he asks questions. Notice how many examples he uses. Number five, what can a preacher do? A preacher can anticipate the things that will be hard and prepare to explain those things. Number six, he can pull their interest with his own energy, enthusiasm, and passion. Jesus did this in John chapter 7. He taught the people at a great feast. And then as they were all gathered together, it says, on the great day of the feast, he called out, if any of you are thirsty, come and drink. A preacher can use passion and interest. He can make his voice very quiet and then raise his voice to grab your ears. He can use some, in, some change and variation like we find in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. Number seven, what can a preacher do? He can move his preaching at the rate of the audience by watching their eyes and shoulders and face, by listening. Are those people paying attention Can I just tell you, this guy right here is a great listener. The way he listens makes me want to go on for two hours. He listens like he wants more. He listens like he's a 15-year-old boy who just had the first plate and says, please, is there any more? That's the way to listen so you can receive, understand, and believe the word that you're given. What can hearers do? What can you do? Five points. Hearers can look for the main point. Good preachers have a main point. If you listen to a preacher and you can't find his main point, it's because he's a bad preacher. If you ever have to teach little children or adults, you need to have a main point. If you don't have a main point, you're being a bad teacher. Number two, hearers can attempt to summarize the sermon in one sentence. Good preachers have a main point, and good preachers follow their argument. I told you at the beginning, how many points does this sermon have? Three. Can any of you tell what of the three points am I in right now? Am I in the first one, or the second one, or the third one? Second. Good listener, I'm in the second. What was the first one? Jesus gives the word. Jesus gives the word. What's the second point? They receive. they receive it. Yeah, that's it. And what's the third point? It's a mystery that I haven't told you yet. There you go, good listeners. You, and if you want to be a good hearer, watch for what he's saying. Follow his arguments. Mortimer Adler, the man who wrote the book, How to Read a Book, says, the way to fall asleep while reading is don't ask questions at all. And I'll tell you, the way to fall asleep during preaching is don't ask questions. The way to stay awake while someone is preaching, ask a lot of questions. Now, maybe you don't ask them out loud, although I don't mind if you want to. The way to stay awake while listening is always be asking questions. As I'm preaching and I say, look in verse 8, say to yourself, what was happening in verse 7? When I say, Jesus said, I gave them the word. Ask yourself, what is this word that Jesus was giving? Ask yourself, who's this them that he's giving it to? Ask questions all the time if you want to be a good hearer. Number three, mark your Bibles. Mark your Bibles. Number four, pray before you come to church. I want to ask, maybe I'll do it in the next hour. How many of you commonly pray and ask God 
for blessing or help or wisdom or grace in the church service before you come. I, just ask yourself that. If you want to be a good hearer, do that before you come to church. At home, pray for that. Number five, hearers can review the sermon afterward by themselves or with their families. This was a very common practice among the Puritans. In fact, many of the Puritans, the Puritans were those godly Christians in the 16 and 17 and 1800s in England and some in Europe and a few in America. They were just heavily, uh, completely devoted to the Lord Jesus and the Bible. Those were the people that God used to send revival around the world. I want to be like the Puritans because God used them and loved them and blessed them. I want to be like the Puritans because they loved God. What did the Puritans commonly do? They would say on a Sunday, we devote our whole day to the church. So when we come home from church, at dinner, we don't talk about other things. We talk about the sermon. They would say when we're done talking about the sermon, many of the Puritans would say we don't allow our children to play. We have them sit on the couch and read books that have to do with the Bible. Or we have them study their catechisms. Why did they do that? They were taking this seriously. I'm not saying you have to do all of those things. You might want to. But I am saying a good hearer, when you go home, think about it. Wait, wait, I want to be a good hearer. I'm going to try to talk at home about the sermon. Many of us cannot talk at home about the sermon because we listened pretty badly. Where did he preach? What book was it? it was, I know it was the New Testament, I think. Wait, it was John, wasn't it? And then we're done. Listen well so that you can talk about it afterward. I would also encourage you to talk with people in the week about the sermon. One very good way to evangelize when you are at work or when you are with people who weren't with you at church on Sunday. Say it's Tuesday morning and you see someone that you haven't seen for a while and you're having coffee together or you're talking together. What could you talk about? Tell them, wow, this week I learned such and such during the sermon on Sunday and tell them what you learned. Many of us don't do that because we didn't learn anything. Well, our time is nearly up. With these two points, we have what? The action of the speaker. Jesus gave something. What did he give? He gave the words. And what did the people do? They received it and they understood them and they believed them. But there's something more here. There's actually content in here. What is the content? The kind of words that should be given. And, and this really deserves to be, have more time. And I'm, I'm, I'm shortchanging it here. But let's just go away with these thoughts. And you can discuss this as a family today. I want you to notice the content of the words. Look in John chapter 17 verse 8. I gave them the words which you gave me. They received them and they knew that. What comes after the word that in verse 8? They knew something about Jesus. Keep going in verse 8. And they believed that. What comes after that? They believed something else about Jesus. Do you see, they understood something about who? Jesus. And then they believed something about who? Jesus. The words that Jesus gave to them 
Help them believe in Jesus and help them understand Jesus. In fact, go back to verse 7. You'll see this again in verse 7. Now they have known that. What comes after that? You have given me, the things you have given me came from you. They know more things about Jesus. Friends, you know that you have had Christian preaching when it draws you to the Son of God. You are a weak Christian or you are a goat. If Christ does not come up constantly and repeatedly and commonly in your heart and in your soul and in your church, you're in a false church. If Christ does not return constantly, if you are not moved to believe in Christ, if you do not understand more of Christ, if you think to yourself, oh, I've settled that, there's nothing, there's nothing much here, then there is a big problem with you. Biblical preaching is faithful. It's faithfully giving the words of God. It is understandable. It's something that you can get and you can receive, but it is Christian. It's got to bring you back to the Son of God. If it doesn't bring you back to the Son of God on a consistent, repeated, joyous, and glorious way, something's wrong there. When Jesus gave the words, it caused them to understand the Son of God. It caused them to believe in the Son of God. It caused them to think more about the Son of God. In fact, if you look in all of John 17, there are five things that the Father gave to the Son in John 17. Biblical preaching will explain all five of those. I have it in my notes, but my time is gone. If you are under biblical preaching, your whole soul will be drawn out to God. I'm sorry, to Jesus Christ and thus to God. I close the sermon this way today. The tool that Christ used is biblical preaching. And he passes that on to us. And I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, connect yourself with a church that has biblical preaching. Find a church that preaches the Bible. Find a church that, number one, faithfully explains the words of God. Number two, find a church that understandably, that gives it to you so you can get it. Find a church where it's Christ, exalted, morning, noon, and night, in their songs, in their prayers, in their, in their activities, in all that happens. It's not the pastor. It's not the people. It's not the brand name of the church. It's Christ. If you found that, then you have the tool that Jesus Christ himself used. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, help us today to use this tool in this assembly. Help us to be good hearers. Help us to train faithful preachers Help me to be a preacher. May we use that tool to produce Christians. And even today, Jesus Christ, come down and save your people and make some goat into a sheep while they hear this word today. We pray in the name of the Son of God. Amen.